Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. Uh, We're going to cover a good amount of ground this morning, and as we plow ahead in this book, I'm just really looking forward to uh, the rest of this series, because um, by and large, I think most people, when they think about the story of Exodus, it kind of ends in their mind with the crossing of the Red Sea that we saw last week. Um, You know, Moses leads Israel across dry ground to the other side, Pharaoh is destroyed, he's no longer a threat, and now, I, I think again, in many minds, it's just... That's the end, and now they're in complete freedom, and now they just proceed to the promised land with no issues at all, right? Wrong. And I have to admit, this is where, probably for the most of my upbringing and Christian life, this is where the story ended in my mind. And yeah, you know, if you kind of asked me, I, I knew that Moses got the Ten Commandments at some point at the top of a mountain, but, but by and all, Exodus is complete, The problem is that the crossing of the Red Sea, where we were last week, that was chapter 14. And yet there are 40 chapters in Exodus. From just a literary standpoint, we are just a third of the way through this book. And uh, now don't get nervous on your couches right now. You're kind of doing the math in your head. You're like, oh, no, we're going to be in this book until 2022. Um, uh, no, we're, we're going to, as you'll see, starting today, we're going to start picking up the pace. And uh, if the Lord allows us, we will be completing Exodus this summer. But this really captures the parallel truth, I think, of how many of us view the Christian life, where all the emphasis is put upon just getting saved. How do you get saved Um, and what happens uh, to get saved, Um, but then comparatively little is put upon uh, the life of following God and what that looks like once you are saved. It's like when engaged couples put so much emphasis on preparing for a wedding day, but little to no time preparing for the marriage that comes after. The wedding day is not the end of the story for a couple that is engaged. It is, in many ways, the beginning of a new story. And so it is with Christian life. Once God saves us, that we need to uh, now really be clear on what it looks like to follow God. And, And so, yes and amen. Let's be passionately clear on how God's people get saved. Let's be passionately clear on the first 14 chapters of Exodus. But then we need to be just as passionate about talking about what we get saved into, not just what we were saved from. Namely, a day-to-day relationship with God where we pursue holiness for our joy and for his glory. And so our theme this morning will be um, how kind of outward responses of God's people reflect what is true inwardly amongst them. That, that our actions are ultimately a reflection of our hearts. And spoiler alert, it's going to start good this morning for Israel, but then it's going to go downhill fast. So chapter 15, I'm just going to read the first three verses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. 
The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. I'm so grateful that Exodus 15 is here because it kind of sets the pattern that we see again and again throughout history up until present day of what happens when God's people are delivered. That God saves His people so that they can worship Him. Worship is this innate response to rejoice, to, um, to worship. And, and, and worship and, and singing are not the same thing, but worship very much includes singing, rejoicing. In fact, you know what the single most repeated command in the Bible is? Do you know what the Bible commands of its people more than anything else? To rejoice, to sing praises to the Lord, to give thanks. It it is a command, the most common command that we are given for our joy, and it's our our joy to obey it, that, that God's people are known for singing the praises of God because we have been delivered from sin, delivered from the enemy. And just like Israel coming out of Egypt, it wasn't by their merit. It wasn't because of their uh, wisdom or their wit or their power. It was solely by the grace and power of God. It is all Him. And, And so the only fitting response is to rejoice and to worship that, that God is constantly telling Moses that, that I will, my people will be led out of Egypt so that they can worship me. It's why we see God's people singing from cover to cover. It's why Paul in the New Testament exhorts the church in Ephesus to, quote, be filled with the Spirit and address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Cover to cover. All the way to Revelation, the final book of the Bible where John is giving his vision of really end times, and he he gets a vision of heaven, and he sees angels singing, and we read in Revelation 15, 3, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. A vision of heaven. John sees angels singing the song of Moses, right here in Exodus 15. God's people, one of the things that marks God's people is singing to the glory of God, to make much of Him. It is an outward action that reflects a heart that is changed, that is delivered, that they understand God's grace and what they've been saved from, what they've been saved into. And and this song in Exodus 15, it it tells us what we ought to be singing. And and so real quickly, three things that Exodus 15 tells us. When we sing, what ought we to sing? Number one, songs who praise God for who He is. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength. He has become my salvation. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. Further down, verse 6, the Lord is powerful. Verse 7, the Lord is great. He is majestic. That good songs praise God for who He is, for His character, for His attributes, for His nature. 
Pastor Mark Dever says it concisely when he says this, quote, when we describe God accurately, we praise Him. That, that, that it's not enough to just praise God uh, for who we want God to be, for who, how we want to answer that question, but we must praise Him truly for who He has revealed Himself to be. It shows us that it, the doctrine of God is the most important doctrine when it comes to worship. I'm sure I've shared this illustration before that I heard from um, a pastor years ago. Um, but but let, let, let's say I were to go home after preaching this sermon, and I kind of go back next door to Rochelle, and I just kind of take Rochelle into my arms, and I just tell her, babe, you are just so beautiful. Man, I just love you so much. And, and I, I, I just don't even know what it is. I, I don't know if it's, if it's your, your jet black hair. I don't know if it's your big, dark brown eyes. Or if it's your olive skin, when I just see you, you just exude beauty. I could say that much better than I just said it, with all the passion and affection in my voice. And you know what? It would do nothing for her. And consequently, it would do nothing for me. Why? Because Rochelle has blonde hair, sometimes purple. And she's got blue eyes. And we both come from that pale European stock. You know what I'm saying? So, so nearly everyone believes in a God or gods, but they can sound so good when they praise, but if they're not describing God for who He really is, it's not worship. So let's be sure that when we sing, we sing songs that describe Him for who He really is. Number two, songs who praise God for what He has done. Again, from chapter 15, verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse 12, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Number two, songs who praise God for what He has done. And then third, songs who praise God for what He will do. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. Verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. It is so important that when we sing, we sing the kind of songs that are God-centered and not man-centered. And that's something that should mark us out as the people of God, are a people who praise Him, who sing to Him, namely about who He is, what He has done, and what He will do. You know, one of the most difficult aspects of not being able to gather as a church body over now the last, uh, you know, I'm kind of losing count, seven or eight Sundays, is the fact that we are not able to sing together. And man, I'm so thankful that we can still be led in song by our team online and AJ is able to compile that and put the lyrics on so that we can sing along. But, but we would all admit it's not the same. It's not the way God designed it. That we are called to sing to one another, embodied presence, and to the Lord. 
And, and now it's just not that way. And, and now my family is victim to hearing more of my voice in the living room than they are of hearing the church body's voice in the sanctuary. And they are victims. Because in all seriousness, I'm not a good singer. And I'm not saying that to be humble. I am a bad singer. Okay? And, and I just don't sound good. But hear me. That shouldn't dictate whether or not I sing when we are gathered together in the worship service. All that means is I shouldn't be the one up front leading us in singing. I should not have a mic in my hand, but man, I should be singing, not as a pastor, as a believer. And as I reflect back on my life, um, for the first 21 years of my life, I rarely sang in church. And it wasn't until that age, my junior year in college, that God's grace, that the gospel really gripped my heart for the first time. I'm, I'm not saying I wasn't necessarily saved. I'm not going to kind of get into that, go down that road. But that at the very least, I knew about God. I knew about salvation but I, it hadn't really gripped me. It hasn't really captured my heart. I don't think I understood the fullness of what grace really was. And one of the evidences of that, that there was a change in me at age 21, is that from that moment on, I began to sing. Not because I just thought, oh, I think I should now, not because I, I all of a sudden got this confidence in my voice because I was and am still terrible, but this is what a heart does when it's captured by Christ in the gathering of believers is that it wants to sing because we sing to God for who He is, for what He has done in our lives. And so I just want to kind of finish this point with this and then I'll move on. But um, here's what this means. It means as church leadership, it's up to us to pick songs that are God-centered, that are rich, lyrical songs that make much of Him, that can also be easily sung along with by people like me. And then it's up to our worship team and our leaders and our tech team to um, display those songs, to sing and lead a church in those songs in a way that, yes, is skillful, but that is also inviting people to sing along with them. And, and if, if they do that, then it's on us to sing. And so I want to be bold yet careful with here, okay? That if you do not sing. I'm not making any grandiose statements about you or projecting I know what's in your heart, but if you do not sing, I just got some questions. I'm, I'm, I'm just nervous for you as to why. Why you're robbing yourself of that or what that is truly reflecting that is inwardly in you. And if I could even be as so bold to take this a step further, and I hope my affection and love that comes across in this, but if you sing most the time, but then there's a certain person that is leading that you don't really like, you don't prefer their voice, 
Or there's a song that you really understand, like the pace or the rhythm, the way it sounds. Or there's an instrument in the band that you're just not a fan of. And so that as a result of these things, you kind of do a silent protest. I'm not going to sing to this. Brother, sister, that says more about your heart than it does their music. And it exposes that you may be more self-centered in worship than you are God-centered. We all have preferences. We all have certain people that just stir our hearts more than others. We all have favorite songs. We all have favorite instruments that lead us in worship. Preferences is not the problem. The problem is that when our singing gets dictated by our preferences, because when our hearts are God-centered, it is our joy to sing to one another and to Him because of who He is, because of what He has done, because of what He will do. And if there is a situation where you find yourself that my preference is not being sung right now, I would just encourage you to challenge you to do what I do in these times, where I just want to hyper-focus on the words then. What am I singing? Let me just, maybe just close your eyes and just focus on that. Moses led the people across the Red Sea, and the first thing Moses did was lead them in song. Now things are about to go downhill. We're actually going to jump ahead to the beginning of verse of chapter 16 and read the first nine verses. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month that they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. There's two ways that you can learn from another person. You can learn from their virtuous example, or you can learn from their terrible mistakes. And especially when you talk about discipleship in the Christian life of following God, both are effective and both, in a sense, are needed as we grow in wisdom. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 10 when he's reflecting on the people of Israel in the wilderness when he says to the church, quote, Now these took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And in this stretch of wilderness from the Red Sea until they get to Mount Sinai in chapter 19, we get a lot of lessons in discipleship 
and leadership that we can glean from. And there's good and there's bad, but it's mostly bad. And the common denominator of the people's sin is grumbling. If singing praise is an outward reflection of a heart that is grateful toward God, grumbling is an outward reflection of a heart that is bitter toward God. And I want to be clear, grumbling is not the same as lament. It's not the same as crying out to God in prayer like the people of Egypt, the people of Israel did while they were in Egypt. He calls us to cry out to him in times of suffering. That's not what grumbling is. Grumbling is complaining. It's almost like a childish whining to God in bitterness. You know, during this quarantine, um, I, I, I've you know just been reading um, a lot more than I normally do, and, I, and I'm able now to really be breaking into books that I've had on my shelf for a long time, or I've had on my Kindle for a long time, but hadn't gotten to before now. And one of those books that I've always wanted to read but didn't get a chance to until about a month ago was the book Respectable Sins by Jerry Bridges. The premise of the book is that in Christianity, we tend to be very loud and outspoken on the obvious sins, the deplorable sins, like sexual and sexuality sins, like drunkenness and addictions, etc. But that Christians, that we, we tend to give ourselves a pass on what Jerry Bridges calls the respectable sins. Yeah, you know, they're not ideal, but they're not that bad. It includes things like frustration or pride, discontentment, irritability, and among others, grumbling. It's one of those things that we so easily can notice in others, but just as easily justify it in ourselves. But grumbling was the premier most highlighted sin of Israel in the wilderness. And it's stunning just how quickly, how often it comes up amongst the people of God there. Uh, and it's a, it's a direct contrast from what we just read in chapter 15. You, you know, I, I skipped the back half of chapter 15, would encourage you to read it. But um, it, it tells a story that how after three days they started grumbling to Moses saying, well, what, what are we going to drink? And then the Lord provided water. And then again in chapter 16, they set out to the wilderness of sin. Um, by the way, the, the name of this place is just a coincidence. That's, that's the Hebrew word for the wilderness in the land of Sinai. Uh, no correlation to the English word sin. Um, but, but before long, quote, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. And so just three things I want to point out about grumbling here for us that should be instructive. Number one, all grumbling is blinding. The nation of Israel was blinded to what God has done and is doing due to their grumbling. And grumbling, we see, just quickly becomes so irrational. It quickly becomes revisionist history. Um, it just, listen, it has not been that long since they've just been rescued from Egypt. Okay, we're talking days, maybe a couple of weeks and yet, did you notice how they reflected and how they're talking to each other about their time in Egypt? Oh man, if we could just go back to Egypt. Do you remember how good we had it back there? We, we, we'd just be sitting around the fire, eating pots and pots of meat. 
Oh, we had so much bread. You remember how much bread we had in Egypt? We really had it good there, huh? But now, Moses, you, you, you brought us here just to kill us. Like, well, why do you even bring us out? Why can't you just let us stay in Egypt? It's insane. It is completely blinded to reality. And this is what grumbling does. It dwells upon the difficulty of a current moment leading to revisionist history. All grumbling is blinding to reality. Number two, all grumbling is contagious. So back in chapter 15, when they were at Marah and they began to grumble, you know, the text says, quote, the people grumbled. But now in chapter 16, in the wilderness of sin, we read, quote, the whole congregation of the people grumbled. You see, grumbling is an attitude that spreads. It is contagious, like a virus. It moves from person to person. It moves from family to family. Grumbling people produce little grumbling disciples around them. Parents who grumble before their kids eventually have kids that grumble. And vice versa, kids who grumble lead to parents who grumble to others about their kids. And it's the attitude where just everything is negative, the the negative is spotlighted, the positive just gets um, kind of cast aside and forgotten about, just everything is terrible and harped upon. None of the provision is ever mentioned. Israel has been saved from slavery with great possessions. But now they're hungry. And it leads to the grumbling that spreads. Number three, all grumbling is against God. Notice that Israel directed their grumbling toward Moses and Aaron. And yet Moses is quick to say back to them in verse 7, He, meaning the Lord, has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And then more directly in verse 9, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. This is important, that all of our grumbling, even the ones directed to others, about others, is always and ultimately against God. And grumbling over anything or anyone it indicates that something is not right with your relationship with the Lord. Singing and praise indicates a right placement of the heart, but grumbling indicates that something is off. That, that there's, there's a bitterness there. there. There's a complaining spirit. There's a discontentment that God has not provided for you in the way and the timing that you demanded. And, and so you grumble. Think about how timely this is for us, church. I hope it's as timely for you as it has been for me. When in our current moment right now and all the unknown and and just the daunting prospect of the future and what that even looks like, how easy it is for me to grumble over a current situation. To allow the intensity of a present moment just overcome and outshine 
the joy of what God has done in my life. Perhaps you find yourself grumbling over having to do more than you usually do, or grumbling over not getting to work as much as you normally work. But regardless, that the temptation is all around us right now. If not situational, then personal. If, if there's increased conflict, or we're being wronged by others, or we, we're feeling um, sinned against or disrespected, and we want to grumble to others about someone else, and, and there, there's this kind of a, a false allure of comfort in our grumbling. But even then, even when we are sinned against, God's Word never gives us provision for grumbling. It is always wrong. Rather, we are called to pray to the Lord about hard relationships, not grumble against Him. And if we are sinned against, the Word of God in Matthew 18 says it is our job to have the courage to approach that person ourselves. But rather than confronting gently, we often choose to grumble to others bitterly. Because it's easier, but it solves nothing. And now someone else's sin has caused you to sin in return. Moses tells Israel that he has heard your grumbling. Is it possible that this is what the Holy Spirit is wanting to communicate to you this morning? Is it possible that he wants to say, He has heard your grumbling. And that we graciously have an opportunity to repent of that today, to receive forgiveness for that. Well, again, I would encourage you to read the rest of chapter 16. It's a familiar story that God does provide. His grace covers their sin by raining down quail at night and manna in the morning. And he does not provide this meat and bread because of their grumbling, but despite it, right? Because he's faithful to his covenant. And so for the next 40 years in the wilderness, God will provide meat at night and bread in the morning, just enough for that daily portion. Then there's a discussion of the Sabbath in there. I would encourage you to read and reflect upon that. And we're going to be coming across that again in a couple of weeks. But we're going to kind of move along. We're going to continue to see this pattern in chapter 17. So follow along as I read verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of, out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? It is almost unbelievable at this point how bitter the people of Israel are. 
They are now receiving meat and bread daily from the sky, literally raining down from the sky, purely by God's provision and grace. And as they move on, now they get thirsty and they immediately grumble once again. And this time, it's actually a grumbling that gets aggressive. It leads to quarreling and then even threatening Moses, kind of putting him on the judgment seat. And and Moses, in panic, goes to the Lord and goes, Lord, I I think they're going to kill me. I I really think they're just going to stone me. I, I can't believe it, but I might not make it out of here alive. And God tells Moses to take the elders of Israel to go to a rock at Horeb, which, by the way, it's the same place where Moses met God at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 when he was shepherding his father-in-law's flock. And he says, I will stand before you there, and you strike that rock, and water will come out. Once again, God provides, despite the sin and rebellion of his people. But the Apostle Paul will make a direct statement about this moment in Exodus chapter 17 that is going to tie everything together. You might recall earlier when I said in 1 uh, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul was reflecting upon Israel's time in the wilderness as he's encouraging and exhorting the church at Corinth. I want to read the first five verses of chapter 10 now. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And the rock was Christ. The rock at Horeb, where God said, I will stand before you. Paul, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit, is now writing that rock was Christ. What does that mean? How does this all, again, tie together? Well, the text in Exodus 17 clues us in. Because when God told Moses to take the staff in his hand, with which he struck the Nile, he's reminding Moses that striking the Nile as the first plague was a pronouncement of judgment upon Egypt and the Egyptian gods. And so now in striking the rock where the Lord stood, it was a pronouncement of judgment that God took upon himself in order to provide for his people. Despite their sin, despite their grumbling and their quarreling and their accusation upon God and Moses, God takes the judgment and punishment and is struck with the staff. This is why Paul says the rock was Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, God takes the judgment of sin upon himself At the cross, he is afflicted and struck in order to provide redemption and salvation for sinners and believe in him. Do you remember at the cross when the spear was struck into Jesus' side, what spilled out? We're told blood and water. Jesus, who will describe himself in John chapter 4 as the living water, and whoever drinks the water I give will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus, who in John chapter 6 will describe himself as, quote, the bread of God. He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In the wilderness, the people grumbled against God. But God provided bread and water from heaven and a rock. So too, we grumble and we sin against God. But God graciously provides His Son from heaven and takes upon judgment Himself. The rock is Christ. This is why if you have not turned your life over to Jesus, which simply means repenting of your sin and trusting in Him, trusting that He paid the price of your sin on the cross, trusting that He declared victory over sin, in the open grave. If you believe in Him, He is the only one who satisfies. It is only through Him that we can be renewed. It's only through Him that we can be saved from sin. It's only through Him that we can be adopted into God's family for all of eternity. Whoever does not believe in Jesus will be judged for sin. But whoever believes in Jesus Christ, the one who took judgment upon himself, will receive eternal life. And when we are saved, we are drawn into him, and we are called to follow him. And by the spirit that indwells us, we can defend against and root out sin that remains in our lives, especially grumbling, and pursue holiness that leads to outward actions that reflect inward gratitude. So what shall we do now in response? What do we do every week after the proclamation of God's word? What do we do to bring this sermon full circle? Church, we sing. We praise his name. And so let me exhort you now, don't log off early. Stay and sing. And let us long for the day when we can gather together and sing again. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for, yes, how it ties together, but more importantly, Lord, how your spirit uses it to stir our affections for you. And I pray, Lord, that we would be focused upon not only that which we have been saved from, but that which we are saved into, a relationship with you, where it is our joy to pursue obedience So, Father, forgive us for the times that we fall short. Give us the courage to get back on the path and follow you. Let it be all grace, Father, that we are saved and all grace that we are sustained and grown in you. And it is your name that we pray. Amen.